Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is David Byrne. He is, of course, the lead singer and frontman of The Talking Heads. That band recorded hit songs like Psycho Killer, Life During Wartime, Once in a Lifetime, and Burning Down the House, among many others. David Byrne is also a solo artist. He's recorded instrumental electronic albums, pop records, even spoken word. He's collaborated with Brian Eno, St. Vincent, Philip Glass, Selena, so many more. He's written books. He's scored soundtracks. He even wrote and directed his own movie, True Stories, from 1986. I have something to say about the difference between American and European cities. I forgot what it is. I have written down at home somewhere. You like music? I know. Everybody says they do. Look, I personally believe I can see Fort Worth from here. If you wanted to find a common theme in all of that work, maybe it's that David Byrne has always worked to push the boundaries of what pop music can be while at the same time taking high art, the kind of stuff that you see in galleries in Manhattan or rep theaters in Brooklyn, and making it more accessible and familiar. His latest project is American Utopia. It started as an album in 2018. Someone in a dangerous place Someone got lost somewhere Many people are locked outside Then he toured it with a handful of dates across the United States. Only because he is David Byrne, he went the extra mile and then some. Twelve musicians, all dressed alike in gray suits, carrying their instruments like a marching band, and dancing. He parlayed that tour into a full-on Broadway production, which premiered in 2019. Then American Utopia's live show became a movie directed by Spike Lee. When I talked to Byrne in 2021, he'd just brought American Utopia back to Broadway. And since then, another live masterpiece is brewing in Byrne World. It's the 40th anniversary of Stop Making Sense. The groundbreaking concert film was directed by Jonathan Demme, the director of Silence of the Lambs in Philadelphia, among others. Later this year, A24 plans to re-release the film. If you can watch it, you should. Not a dull moment in there would be very reasonable to say greatest concert movie ever made. Let's kick things off with a song from the stage version of American Utopia. This one is called Everybody's Coming to My House.
David Byrne, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. I was thinking about your own music and your record label, and I found myself wondering (laughs) how much of the day are you listening to music and how much of that time is it music that you're not already really familiar with? Wow. Okay. Not every day. I don't listen. There are some days when I don't listen to any music. And then there's some days when, yes, I find time, like an hour maybe, to just browse around and see if what new stuff I can hear, or if somebody writes me and if, you know, a friend or a bandmate or somebody recommends something, I'll listen to that, and then that will probably then take me down a rabbit hole, and I'll start listening to other stuff related to that. Uh, and then I'll say, if I like it, I'll save it to a playlist that I've made, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then there's, on certain days, there'll be times where I'm actually working on music, listening to music that I'm uh, writing stuff in progress or all that kind of thing. Um, not every day. And it's not, I can't do it all day. <laughs> if that would be kind of... I think my brain can only kind of focus on that for a certain amount of time. And then you kind of get where you're diminishing returns. You're not getting much creative coming out anymore. Do you get the same kind of charge out of it that you got out of it when you were, you know, a teenager or 22 or whatever? Well, it's a little bit different, but occasionally, yes. Occasionally, yes. Uh, When I was a teenager or younger everything was completely new and you were constantly like every year or every six months or whatever a friend would bring over a record and you'd listen to it or you'd hear something or you'd see something and you it was completely new you'd never seen anything like it before and that would apply to music that I was hearing or movies there were there was a point when I went to art school when I they had screenings of uh, like European movies and all these different kinds of movies that I didn't know existed. They didn't play in the movie theater in the suburban town that I grew up in. Had no idea these things existed. And then when I came to New York, I also saw a kind of avant-garde theater that kind of blew, blew me away at thinking about different kinds of ways of performing and what that might mean and all kinds of stuff. That still happens. It's not the same completely life-changing experience that it might have been, but it still happens. I read uh, in a magazine, some guy was being interviewed or writing something, and he mentioned this kind of experimental, I guess you'd say, or avant-garde kind of electronic music out of Uganda. And he mentioned the name of this group or this collective that does this. So I just, you know, found it online through a streaming service and I was kind of blown away. I mean, I, this, it was really radical. It was extremely radical stuff, as, as radical as anything I'd been hearing anywhere. And you kind of realize that uh, the, with all those connections, with streaming and uh, all the kind of online connections that people have now, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on that, that is 
in places where you might not expect it. Uh, and sometimes it can be very inspirational and surprising. I mean, I think especially that surprising part seems like something that you, I mean, you were describing that even in your own like uh, childhood and adolescence, that it was that surprising thing that really got you. And you're still kind of looking for that. You're looking for something you haven't heard before. Oh, all the time. And sometimes it could be pop music. Uh, there's plenty of pop music being <laughs> being made these days, and uh, that hasn't that hasn't changed. But <laughs> that's going to be <laughs> David. That's going to be the headline on our piece when it runs on NPR.org. Burn, burn to America. There's plenty of pop music being made these days. Yes. Um, <laughs> number wise, there's more music being made and uploaded and all that than ever before, which is. <laughs> using the current uh, the current accounting system, that's one of the reasons that uh, musicians receive such paltry payment from a lot of streaming service because there's so many of us putting stuff up there, and it gets some, somewhat divided amongst all of us. Um, yes, <laughs> I, I interviewed Steve Albini one time in Chicago, and um, this was like at the beginning. This was 15 years ago, maybe at the beginning of MP3s and things becoming mainstream and I asked him a I asked him a kind of future of the music industry question and uh a kind of our all musicians out of luck question and um what he said was I don't know I think it's probably kind of like tennis a lot of people play tennis and some people are good at it but not that many of them expect to do it for a living <laughs> and I was like eh, well that is that was certainly true for me when I certainly when when I started out I had no expectations of m making a living with music I thought no there's people who are much uh they've gone to school for this or they've trained it or they've been working at it their whole lives they're really kind of really really good at it and I thought I feel like I have something to say but I don't feel like I in any way can compete with those people. So I had no expectations. Is there music that you listen to now, nostalgically, like in the same way that, you know, whether or not it's, it's transcendently great or just hits a, hits a nerve in you in the same way that like once in a while when I'm driving down the street, and I'm listening to a podcast or something, I'm like, Oh no, 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 no. I just for a minute, I'm going to listen to Black Star, you know, the record that I listened to over and over and over and over and over when I was 17. <laughs> you know uh -huh. what I mean? <laughs> the other day, yeah, I probably, I might have put on a playlist that I made of kind of alternative country artists. It was kind of like Lucinda Williams, Nico Case, Roseanne Cash, name it. It was a playlist that I had. Not too many of the songs on it are, are really super new. Some of them are. But uh, yeah, so that was kind of like a, a go-to kind of comfort zones. Although the songs are, some of them not comforting, I have to say. <laughs> but, uh, but as far as a listening experience, it was kind of a comfort zone place to go. I thought you were going to say like, yeah, once in a while I, I put on Fats Domino and I think about the, the diner I used to eat in when I was six with my mom and dad or something like that. Yeah, well, sometimes that too. I mean, I've been working on another playlist where it's all kind of doo-wop stuff like that where I'm just fascinated by 
there was that period where, where all these nonsense syllables were absolutely a part of lots of songs. You don't get it very much, people doing dip 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 whoa, whoa, You don't get a lot of that in songs anymore. Uh, and so, I, yeah, I thought, oh, let me listen to people doing all this kind of nonsense stuff with their mouths. There was a real sort of arms race of who can have the most distinctive, uh, like, backup vocal song sound. You know, it starts with everybody going la, 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 and, and pretty soon it's manabadabadabada. Yeah, yeah, all kinds of stuff. Bop, shabop, boobop, shabop. Yeah, it was all very rhythmic, uh, really nice. What did you think you were going to do with your life when you didn't expect to become a professional musician? I'd gone to art school, so my, uh, my actual ambition was to become a fine artist, to exhibit in galleries and do something along those lines, which occasionally I do. So I get managed years later to sort of realize that, not in an incredibly successful way, but successful enough for me in that I occasionally get to realize some kind of installation that I've imagined. Like I did this thing called playing the building where there's this device that triggers things that make noises out of the infrastructure of a building. And so, you know, I got to do that kind of stuff. But that was my ambition early on. Did you want to be a a painter or did you want to do wild installations like uh, playing the building? I didn't want to be a painter. I thought that was kind of retrograde. I thought that painting was, at that point, um, seemed like... Seemed, <laughs> I mean, you were an insolent teen. You don't have to Yeah, yeah, you don't have exactly. To you're, an insolent young, you're a young, ambitious, and insolent young person who thinks that they're going to overthrow everything. And that's what was going on at the time, too. I remember I had an idea of some sort of electronic system. This was kind of in the, in the mid-70s or whatever. Some kind of electronic system where uh, artists would find out what art collectors um, wanted. And art collectors uh, would find out which artists were producing the things that they liked. So it'd be like all these different lists of criteria, you know, like I like circles. I like bright colors. No, I like dark colors. I like this and that. Or I like to do this. Or I like to do that. And they would kind of match, match them up. At the time, that seemed like a really fanciful idea and a little bit far-fetched. Now, I would be very surprised if there isn't an app that does exactly that. Um, or, you know, a bunch of people in blue chip galleries who do it manually in a, in a kind of way. But anyway, I thought... It was, I don't know if I was being cynical or... or <laughs> That's what I was about to ask I don't know. you, David. I don't know if I was being cynical or if I was just thinking, oh, why, why not? Let's see what happens. Uh, let's see what, what happens. Um, you might end up with really terrible uh, art because people will be just pandering to the, the market. Um, but you never know. You might end up with something else. It's funny that that question of was I being cynical or not came up, right? Because <laughs> one of the things that I was thinking about as I was thinking about your your body of work is that it, especially in the 70s, 
you're making music in the context of punk rock. You know, you're playing on bills with punk bands and, you know, I don't know if you thought of yourself as, as a punk rock guy or, or of Talking Heads as a punk rock band, but um, like that definitely was a big thing that was going on, right? And like a, a big part of punk rock is questioning everything uh, and sort of discarding everything and seeing what happens, right? But Talking Heads and and also kind of a spirit that anyone can make art, like a, anyone and everyone can can make art. And talking heads, those are all things that describe talking heads, right? But, um, but also like the aesthetics that resulted from your exploration of those questions are so different um, from, you know, whatever people think of as being punk rock at the time, right? Like it, not noisy and abrasive and all of those things. Exactly. I agree completely. But I felt like we had those kind of values and aspirations in common. As you said, the idea that anybody could do it, the idea of kind of not accepting kind of the received, this is the way you're supposed to do it, and this is what you're supposed to do, and this is what the music's supposed to sound like. But instead, you kind of reinvent it for yourself, for your generation, for your, the people you know. Make, let, let's make something that's relevant to the people you know instead of this stuff that to us felt kind of corporate and a little too slick and not speaking to our lives. And yeah, and I felt like, well, yeah, not everybody's gonna, gonna answer those criteria in this, respond to those criteria in the same way. Uh, and I thought that was good. Although, not surprisingly, things do kind of tend to coalesce into a kind of style or well, this is, the, this is what punk rock sounds like. It's noisy and abrasive and people have spiky hair. But it's, not all of it was, um, but it, it does tend to coalesce as things do. Even more with David Burns still to come. After the break, he has cool dance moves, right? The wiggling, the big gestures, the giant suit. Where did he learn to dance like that? The answer after the break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Emily Heller. And I'm Lisa Hanawalt. And we're the hosts of Baby Geniuses. We've been doing our podcast for over 10 years. When we started, it was about trying to learn something new every episode. Now it's about us trying to actively get stupider. And it's working. (laughs) Hang out with us and you'll hear us chat about... Gardening. Horses. Various problems with our butts. And all the weird stuff that makes us horny. That's so weird, all that stuff. (laughs) Baby Geniuses, a show for adult idiots. Every other week on Maximum Fun. Baby Geniuses, we know everything. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is David Byrne. He's the former frontman of the Talking Heads and an inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. When I talked to him in 2021, it was just before his show, American Utopia, returned to Broadway. This year, Byrne and the rest of the Talking Heads are celebrating the 40th anniversary of their award-winning concert film, Stop Making Sense. Here's a song from Stop Making Sense, Slippery People. Slippery people. 
myself wondering as I was thinking about you and your friends in 1978 or whatever uh, asking why do we do this and why do we do that like basically what you learned from doing that like what things did you learn like oh this is why we do that and what things did you learn that were like oh we we never needed that I asked myself things like how does how should one be on stage? At first, I thought to myself, well, just be yourself, be natural. Wear your normal street clothes, that kind of thing. Don't, you don't have to wear any costumes or act in some kind of uh, rehearsed way. Let's be real. And then I realized, after, at some point, I realized nothing's real on stage. You've stepped into a kind of, let's say, a ritual space. Uh, and nothing that happens in that space is real. All of it is artificial. If you're wearing just a T-shirt, that's a statement. Uh, it might be your normal street clothes, but it becomes a statement once you step on stage wearing that. Uh, but it's obviously a decision. And everything you do, the way you move or the way you don't move, everything becomes a, you know, considered that way. And so I started to think about all that and started to think, how do I do that in a way that is, that speaks to me and us and isn't, again, just moving the way rock and roll bands are supposed to move um, or wearing what we're supposed to wear. Let's come up with something that has some kind of meaning for us. What was something that you remember thinking of making up, creating as, you know, aware that it was artifice or aware that it was performance, that you were like, yeah, this works, this fits. That, it really coalesced with the, the tour that was, that became, that was filmed for Stop Making Sense. You may ask yourself, am I right? Am I wrong? You may say to yourself, my God, what have I done? That tour, really, all that really started to coalesce. It was ha happening a little bit incrementally before that, but on that one, it really was kind of like, we're gonna, we're gonna all wear shades of gray. I'm gonna wear a, a kind of suit, and then at some point, I'm gonna wear this giant suit. And I wasn't, I, I, I'm not sure I knew exactly what that meant, but it, <laughs> I had an idea what it meant, um, a kind of visceral sense of what it meant emotionally, but also I just thought this is a very resonant image somehow, so all those kinds of things. And the fact that I would start to 
whatever codify and and kind of uh, work on the kind of movement and dancing. You could call it dancing. The kind of movement, you know, the kind of thing where people do this all the time, where you do something on stage, it works. You feel like it really is appropriate to that moment. And so you go, okay, remember that. I'm going to do that next time. Um, Maybe it gets a good reaction from the audience. Maybe it doesn't, but you feel like that feels right there. And so I started doing that, and gradually you kind of, little by little, you've got a whole kind of uh, array of bits of movement for yourself and for other people and go, this get this you do here, and we do this here, and we do this here. And, and it's a way of making choreography in one way or another. Did you at some point have a choreographer? Later on, yes. Later on, I did. And have continued to do that. Although it's usually choreographers who are used to working with non-dancers, used to working with people who, like myself who kind of improvise our movement and then they help shape those improvisations in the same way. They'll look at it and go, what you did just there, that's really good. You should keep that. Why don't you tie that to this other thing? And you know, that kind of thing. Rather than trying to teach you a bunch of steps that that you know that we've all seen a million times before. I'd love to see you do the hustle on stage. Uh, I tried. I learned a bus stop. I learned the bus stop a couple of months ago. A very simple version of that. Um, took, it was hard for me. I'm. I don't naturally learn steps, but I can do it with a little practice. Did you dance at parties as a teenager? I mean, like you're from Baltimore. Did you ever? Did you ever like do the shag? No, I didn't. No, uh, no, I would have never danced at my parties and things. I don't think so. I think I would have been terrified. Were you like going to parties or just <laughs> out of that loop? Uh, I don't remember going to parties. I remember when I was an adolescent, there was this thing in the neighborhood called the Teen Center. And they would have bands. A bunch of kids would just play in the, in the school cafeteria. And bands would, local bands would play there. And it just blew me away. One band came, and to me, to my ears at that point, they sounded exactly like the Beatles. And I thought, how the hell are they doing this? And, and then the next week or a week after that, there was another group that came through, uh, and they had all the moves of the Temptations. They'd learned all the Temptations dance moves. And they had this very intricate choreography. And I thought, how did they do that? And uh, yes, so <laughs> that, was, that was the thing. I would love to be in a C-plus version of The Temptations. Like, do the moves, wear the fits. Uh-huh. Like, that sounds like the greatest. Like, I'm, I'm not a strong singer. I'm not a strong dancer. Uh, I have outfits. But like... I would, you could, you wouldn't have to work very hard to sell me on being in, (laughs) doing temptation songs in a community center, 100%. You can imagine, Somebody will show me the moves. And you can imagine, yes, as a young person sees that and goes, boy, does that look like fun. Boy, if only I could do that. Yeah. (laughs) Were there bits of the kind of, uh, standard received orthodoxy 
that you questioned as a young man that upon questioning them, you were like, nope, I accept it. I've questioned it. And actually, it's great. Yeah, I'm going to have trouble coming up with a good example right now, but you're absolutely right. There are things where you have to kind of throw it out and reject it. And then at some point you learn, oh, there's a reason for that. There's a reason we do that or that, that that's done that way. Um, and if you can then learn how to do that in your own way, uh, then... Yeah, then, then you've, you've got something. Uh, I mean, some of those things are like, uh, <laughs> in performance, it might be like how you enter the stage um, and how you leave. Um, those kinds of things, which at first you see it and you go, oh, it's so overdramatic or it's so this or that. And then you realize it's a really important moment and it actually tells the audience a lot. And there's you don't have to do it the same way as everybody else, but there's a, there's a reason why that is uh, considered and, and kind of worked out in some way. I mean, I think the stage presentation of American Utopia is so distinct in that musical performances have a certain aesthetic to them that is determined by the band, right? Like, uh, a big band sits on a, on those risers, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, behind those, behind those art deco music stands or like, uh, you know, a rock band has a, a drummer that comes up out of the floor that's in the back, you know, a bassist on one side and a lead guitarist on the other side and a lead singer in the middle. Right. Um, and you have made the choice to divorce the entire band from like the physical requirements of, uh, you know, the traditional physical requirements of being in a band by giving everybody uh, an instrument that they can play either, you know, in their hands or with a shoulder strap, um, breaking up the drums so that everyone has their own thing in their, you know, in their hands or on their shoulder strap. just have this big space to play with how did you decide to do that uh incrementally i'd i'd done a tour i don't know 10 years ago or so i did a tour where i had some dancers and and myself and uh some of the singers we all dan did some dancing together but the band was pretty fixed and then i did a tour not too long ago with annie clark with saint vincent and um We'd done a record that featured a lot of brass instruments. So we brought along a whole brass section. Immediately, I thought, oh, brass section. They're like a marching band. We can, uh, they can move around. They can play while they're moving. They 
some of them have already done that in their past. And we just put mics on them and we can make a whole choreographic thing where sometimes they form a circle and sometimes they form a line and sometimes they're kind of doing this crossing back and forth and doing all that kind of stuff. So we did that uh, and I thought we can then change the, the whole stage picture or the stage arrangement for every song to some extent. As you said, rather than being stuck with the drummer upstage in the back and the bass player on one side and guitar player on the other side, and like that's what you get for the whole evening, um, I thought, no, you can move them around. We can move them around. And then, then I thought, oh, let's see if the technology exists to do it for everybody, not just uh, whatever, a guitar player or whatever. If we And how many... How many players does it take to achieve a kind of drum sound the way you would like in a New Orleans second line group or whatever? How many is it going to take? Can I afford that? Is it possible to do a, a, a wireless keyboard? Is, is that technically possible? It turns out it is. Uh, I, had, <laughs> I wasn't sure. Um, but yeah, we found like some kind of technology that was being made in Hungary or someplace. And that allowed that. So we said, okay, we're doing it. Every, we're going to try it with everybody. We had to do a test. We had to go to um, Lidditz or Mannheim, Pennsylvania, in um, Pennsylvania Dutch country to, do, to, do a, to test the technology. What was the distinctive quality of Mannheim, Pennsylvania? Oh, it's kind of interesting. Um, one of the big PA companies, you know, that does sound for pop concerts, emerged and out of these small towns in Pennsylvania. Um, and so they would build their speakers and all this kind of stuff. And then they built a place for bands to rehearse, rehearsal room. And then another company comes along and says, well, we're going to make the sets for all those big stadium shows where there's a huge set that's being made. We didn't do anything like that, but they, so all this stuff emerged kind of clumped in this kind of rural area. It happens to be a place where a lot of highways cross. So now there's a million like Amazon warehouses that around there and other kind of fulfillment centers because of the same, same reason. So that was a place where we could set up our whole stage and technology and everything and really test it out and so that's what worked uh i think um there was oh uh, yeah there was some very big pop artist that's going to come to mind i'm going to remember in a second who is rehearsing on the other place but we weren't we weren't allowed to go in and watch <laughs> 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 your your I'm David Byrne card didn't work. No, it does not work. No, they don't want. They don't I want. Just figured they give you a lanyard you can show. No, and they'll let you backstage wherever. Okay, it was Kate, it was Katy Perry, and um, but I can understand what they're working. They don't want with social media and everything. They don't want any pictures of any of any of their upcoming thing that they're working on to get out. So, yeah, okay, okay. We'll wrap up with David Byrne in just a little bit. When we come back from the break, David is definitely neurodivergent, and he thinks probably on the autism spectrum. He'll tell us why his very different brain powers his art. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
The following pro wrestling contest is scheduled for one fall. Making their way to the ring from the Tights and Fights podcast are the baddest trio of audio, the hair to beware, Danielle Radford. It really is great hair. The Brit with a permit to hit, Lindsay Kell. The queen is dead. Long live the queen. And the fast-talking, fist-clocking Hal Uplin. See, I can wrestle and be an announcer. Get ready for tights and fights. Listen every Saturday or face the pain. Find us on Maximum Fun. No ring the bell. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is David Byrne. He is, of course, the lead singer of The Talking Heads, as well as a prolific and influential solo artist. This year, The Talking Heads are celebrating the 40th anniversary of Stop Making Sense. Jonathan Demme directed that concert film, which captured the band at the height of their powers. At the time, they had just released their smash hit album, Speaking in Tongues, and they pulled out all the stops. Massive set pieces, stunning projections, choreographed dance moves, and of course, the giant suit. This is a time when I think you can actually call an outfit iconic. When I talked to David Byrne in 2021, he was in the middle of another grand live show, American Utopia, which had just returned to Broadway. Before we get back into our conversation, let's hear another song from Stop Making Sense. This must be the place, Naive Melody. Something I like to do uh, when I'm trying to distract myself on my computer is I will go into YouTube and I will watch uh, show bands, uh, HBCU marching bands. You know, I'll, I'll look at the Florida A&M band or, or whatever, you know, where they're stepping and doing, you know, playing five on it or something like that. And that is my absolute most joyful favorite thing to do is uh watch the like drum majorettes and uh like everybody playing tubas while they're on their backs with one one hand on the ground um that kind of stuff that is like my favorite thing to see in yes, the world. and it's kind of like how in the world are they doing this it takes incredible strength <laughs> and stamina uh, and there's like 80 of them. How do 80 people get on the same page doing anything? Yes. It is true that if you can get to a point where you're actually doing things in sync like that, like those bands do, there's a real transcendent kind of feeling that emerges from that. You kind of get outside of your own self and your own ego and you become part of this bigger thing that, you, that can only happen if you surrender to it. If you become allow, if you don't decide, I'm not going to solo here. I have to do play my part that locks in with everybody else, and I have to move in step with everybody else. And then you get this rush uh, that you can kind of see uh, by watching it. But when you're in it, it's just incredible. One of the things that is most distinctive to me about your music is that. A lot of it is dance music. 
And um, I wonder how you came to think you could or should make music for people to dance to. <laughs> so it was something that I liked. I liked music that had a strong rhythm to it. Uh, I remember with the original Talking Hands band members, we all shared a loft at some point, and our record collection was pretty much, you could look at the record collection and, and see where we were going. I mean, it was things like Al Green, uh, a guy named Hamilton Bohannon, who did kind of dance music, like, you know, Philadelphia Soul, Velvet Underground, David Bowie, Roxy Music, all that. So, you know, if you kind of stir all that up, well, that's where, that's where we ended up. I feel like Afrobeat too, especially in those, in those like mid, in, in those like early to mid eighties, uh, uh, talking heads records. I hear it all day. I remember being, I was probably 19 or 20, and Questlove from The Roots started getting really obsessed with Fela Kuti, and I was on his message board, OK Player, and he would be posting about different Fela stuff. And I was like, I should check this out. And when I first heard Fela, I was like, oh, how did I not know about this, one of the greatest musics ever? <laughs> Like, uh -huh. I was like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And I had not heard of it until nine months ago. And I hear those sounds in Talking Heads records a lot. Like there's a lot of that, you know, it's dance music where there's a lot of stuff going on. You know, there's a lot of interplay. That came a little bit later. Um, but yes, started being aware of kind of African pop music, uh, and later on, I got very immersed in kind of Latin American uh, music and whether it was pop music or singer-songwriters or dance bands, whatever. Yes, and this was all part of New York, too. This, uh, not so much the African bands, although they would come through occasionally, play to, to the community, but the Latin music was just all over New York in that, during that period. Just the clubs were, you were just hearing it everywhere. It didn't, obviously there was not a lot of crossover with the kind of punk rockers, but, but it coexisted. They existed at the same time. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> Joe Kubo would occasionally play CBGBs, right? Well, yeah, they would play. They would play SOBs. Ray Ray Barreto would be over yeah. there. Yeah, no, on the double bill with. They played uh, like the Village Gate, which was is now Poisson Rouge, and they play there. Uh, I think it was on Thursdays. They had a 
series called Salsa Meets Jazz, where there'd be like Ray Barreto's band and then some incredible jazz soloist, you know, a pretty, pretty good name, who would sit in and kind of improvise and take solos during kind of some of the dance breaks. And there was a dance floor in, in the club. So the people would dance and there was tables around the side, but there was also, it was music for dancing. That was also really great music too. So yeah, so I realized that if you can get people to move their bodies, uh, if you can play music that has that kind of rhythmic connection, you can kind of hang a lot of things on that. You can hang a lot of ideas and, what you want to say, lyrical stuff, musical stuff, keep the groove going and you can really bring, carry a lot of baggage with that. There's things that might, might seem difficult to put in front of an audience in other ways, but if you've got their asses moving, you, know, you can kind of put a lot of things out there. I have read in a thousand different places people describing you as possibly being on the uh, autism spectrum. And I don't know whether that's something that came from a diagnosis or came from just people saying, well, this guy has a history of performing awkwardness on stage sometimes or, or whatever. But I wondered, like, you know, there are things that people associate with autism um, who are neurotypical that are, you know, social awkwardness, those kinds of things, the sort of obvious things. But like those differences in how brains work are much more expansive than just, you know, it's challenging to read faces for somebody who's neurodivergent. Like, and I wondered, A, if that is something that you've thought about yourself and B, if there are like ways you've noticed your brain is different from a lot of the people around you, you know, sensory sensitivities or ways that you organize your thoughts and you're like, oh, you don't do that? Yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, obviously, I'm not as socially awkward as I uh, was in the past. When, yes, and I was fairly socially awkward in the past, was very uncomfortable just kind of having normal conversations with people or being around whole groups of people. So I'd hang around with some friends. I'd have some friends and I'd hang around with them, let them do the talking and do the introductions. And I would just kind of vicariously uh, be part of that. At some point, <laughs> some point, a friend, a friend of mine, this whole idea of the spectrum became kind of an idea that was being floated around. And a friend of mine said, David, look, that's you. <laughs> that is definitely you. They're all these things, they fit. I mean, it was, in, from, in my case, it was pretty mild, not debilitating. Um, and as probably many people have said, it's a kind of superpower in a way. You're very uncomfortable socially, socially so there are certain drawbacks. There's certainly big drawbacks in that way. But there's other advantages I could concentrate and focus on kind of learning guitar parts or writing or 
doing whatever it was I was doing. I, you know, you, fo- you can really focus because <laughs> you just shut all that other stuff out. Um, you don't get stra- distracted by that. So that it's, it has some advantages. You also tend to, one t- tends to take a, a, a view of the world um, as I've been described as like an anthropologist from Mars. You tend to, as you said, look, look at folks and go, oh, when people me- do this, it means this. <laughs> and you're trying to understand why do people do this? Why do they act like that? Why do they say that? And why do they make, what does that face mean? All those kinds of things. This is not, nothing too extreme. That's a, it sounds a little exaggerated as I describe it, but there's an element of that. Of, and it's apparent in a lot of the songs that I've written where I'm trying to understand people's human behavior. What does it mean? What does that signify? What's that about? Um, and everybody uh, does that and recognizes those things, but not, not everybody, I guess, steps back and goes, oh, why are you doing that? Which sometimes seems like, well, that's just what we do. That's just what it... But then when you just stop and go, but why are you doing it is a very different thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is true for many to all artists is that there is something in their life that has led them to consider the world around them as an outsider, you know, because if you are part of the dominant culture, if you're part of, if you're neurotypical, if you think in a very similar way to the other people around you, um, there isn't much reason for you to to take a, you know, third eye perspective on what's going on, right? Like if you're not an outsider in some way, you can just ride with the current, you know? Um, and certainly neurodivergence is not the only version of that. You know what I mean? Like you could be, I mean, you could be African-American in the United States, for example. And, you know, the, the dominant culture is constantly forcing you to you know, have a, have an, uh, an outsider's perspective. Right. Exactly. Um, but that is, that really is like, like, you know, you talked about thinking about the way that, that costume, um, affects the audience, right? Like I'm a menswear writer and it's something, so it's something I think about a lot and yeah, it is a question of like, how do you, you know, if you're looking at it as a, communication system which it is you know you're making choices and you are an artist you know what i mean Mm -hmm. i'm not sure what else to say it's um it doesn't seem like a disability when you're in it because you're in it uh it's like when you're when you're a child you can have be having what in retrospect might seem like an unhappy childhood i'm not saying i did but you can, but you don't know that always. You don't always know it because that's your only experience. You don't have anything to compare it to. And then later when you can get a bigger perspective, you realize, oh, I was not as social as some of these other people were. Do you think that you are a cheerful guy? For the most part, yes. I think I am. Do you think that's just your 
how you were born into the world, or do you think it's like a, a choice you made? Ah, uh, if it's a choice, it's one I'm unaware of. Um, but I, I find a lot of the people, things in the world kind of amazing and kind of marvelous, surprising, and sometimes very funny. There's a lot of joy in that. I mean, if you can walk down the street and see something you like and it makes you happy. Yeah, usually that that's, happens fairly often. That happens fairly often. I take little pictures of things that I see on the street. What's something that you took a picture of recently? I think I was walking in a rural area and I took pictures of trees that looked like body parts. Some of them quite rude and some of them just kind of <laughs> absurd looking. Yeah, uh, there was one where really it looked like the the roots of the trees, two trees had grown out and were shaking hands with one another. Um, they were kind of intertwined from two different trees. David Byrne, thank you for taking all this time to talk to me. Uh, and thank you for your your wonderful show. I'm excited to I'm, I'm, I'm going to do what it takes to get to New York so I can see it in real life. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. David Byrne. The American Utopia live show played its final performance in April of last year. You can watch the film, which was directed by none other than Spike Lee, on Max. The Stop Making Sense re-release will premiere in theaters in September. Let's go out on one more Talking Heads song, Road to Nowhere. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. My house is currently covered in napkins because I just gave away on Craigslist the chest where we kept all the napkins, but I did not have a good plan for where the napkins were going to go afterwards. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by the great DJW, also known as Dan Wally. By the way, I just put, we had a co-op launch party for Maximum Fun, and uh, Dan Wally and I DJed. I just put the mixes up on Mixcloud. So go search for Jesse Thorne or DJW on Mixcloud and listen to our classic 45 soul mixes. Our theme song is Huddle Formation, written and recorded by The Go Team. Thanks to them. Thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. Special thanks to David Byrne for recording himself back in 2021 and immediately sending a pristine wave file, then following up to make sure that we got it. True professional, if ever there was one. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Follow us in those places. We will share with you our interviews. Please share them thence. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. We-